state your name uh, and uh, ask your question. Uh, keep it. You make your comment. If you have a comment, make it very brief. And keep your uh, comments, uh, as I say, brief, and your question to the point. And uh, we would ask that when you have given your question, if you could sit down to allow the next person to come up. Uh, the microphone is here, up, uh, right up here. And so uh, we'll turn the time now over to uh, questions. So and we'll welcome back Cheryl. We also have a traveling mic. Cheryl, I think we've met. Uh, uh, t- uh, Many times, more times than uh, I would care to t- Terry Shellington, say. I, I really appreciated your uh, comments. However, a question surfaced at our table that you're maybe assuming we know the answer to, but I'd like to hear you address. Uh, namely, does it really matter that much, like other than a few burrowing owls and gophers? Uh, uh, if you could speak concisely to why should we care about this uh, unless we really love gophers and few other kinfolk? Well, I, I thought we left behind us the whole um, a debate about what use is a species. I mean, it's a very utilitarian look at uh, biodiversity, and we know that there's a very complex web of life uh, that has evolved for thousands and thousands of years. Uh, and it's all interrelated. And I think it was Aldo Leopold that said the first rule of intelligent tinkering is don't throw away any of the pieces. And so we don't understand the role of all these species in our ecosystems, and we don't know when we take when we take a critical number away, the unraveling that might happen. And when I, I say unraveling, I say it's, um, it's loss of, um, uh, what should we say, genetic information perhaps that would be useful uh, as climate change proceeds uh, and we need to become better adept at adapting to drought. Our prairie may have um, secrets there that we, haven't, we don't know about yet that would help us uh, develop new food, foods or... Uh, ways of stabilizing land. Like I'm planting blue grama grass in my front yard. It's a native species and it's doing quite well. And why we decided we needed an invader from somewhere else is, is a puzzle right now when we think about it. And then I, I think, Terry, I went into all the other um, ecosystem goods and services. Like we do know that native prairie, the grasses have very deep roots. They store carbon very deep in the soil. And I don't have the figures with me now, but there have been scientific papers done that document uh, the large storage, carbon storage capacity in uh, native grasslands. And when you convert them to cropland, uh, that's all released. So you're contributing to the, the, uh, the problem with the carbon balance in the atmosphere. Watershed, I mean, it's, it's shown that... Um, Native prairie with abundant litter uh, holds water. It percolates down into the soil. It recharges groundwater, and then that flows gradually out into our river systems. And uh, but cultivated lands don't do that. So it's uh, we know that uh, maintaining a good cover with lots of litter uh, in our watersheds uh, helps uh, capture the waterfall that we do get, and that could become much more important. 
over time. Protection of soil. Uh, we, we were, uh, many of us weren't alive then, but we know stories of our ancestors about uh, erosion of the prairies from uh, in the 30s because of drought and the fact that we didn't have a- adequate cover on our on our soils. Well, the native prairie species hold it together if it's well if it's well managed. It, the, the, uh, the soil is uh, maintained and continues to be productive throughout those those periods. And I do think sustainable livestock production is a very important value to our society, not only because of the food it provides, um, the livelihoods it provides, but it's also part of our heritage, the ranching heritage. And uh, you can't have uh, ranchers without native grasslands. So um, I hope those are... I hope those reasons kind of explain to you, Terry, why I care and why I think you should, but uh, part of it is a philosophical bent. Yeah. Uh, hello, my name is Frank Toth. I normally come in to the last question today. I thought I'd better do that. I thought you'd be overwhelmed with questions on a wonderful speech that you gave us. Anyway, referring to the environment and the protection of the same, uh, can you tell us exactly the legal aspects of reclamation when or, when corporations do mining oil companies. I refer to it because lately the newspaper is filled with people saying, what are we worried about 16 or 26 ducks, this, that, and everything. We know that the major oil company Suncor came in in the late 50s, all right? And they've been destroying and killing and killing ever since, but given us little wee money for it. But what is the law on reclamation on oil wells, mining things? Uh, we know it's not being it's not being seen through as protected. Can you give us an outline of what they're supposed to do to reclaim it? Don't take 60 years to do it. And they've been killing these animals for, for 60 years, of it, so we shouldn't worry about a few ducks. Thank you. Yeah, I, th- I think I'll restrict my comments on that to the uh, eco-region that we're in, which is the prairies, and which oh, that my comment uh, because I'm not totally aware of the boreal forest uh, reclamation issues and what's what's. I can't speak really informed about those, but for sure on native prairie, when a well uh, oil and gas company um, plans a development, they have to submit a reclamation plan that explains how they will return the land to what we call equivalent land capability. And equivalent land capability used to mean um, you would just put it back in a grass cover uh, that would hold the soil. But over the last several, well, several years, um, there's been a concept evolving that you would restore it to native community. And now, uh, when developments go in on native prairie, at least on public land, um, sustainable resource development staff uh, and an Alberta environment who has responsibility for issuing reclamation certificates require that uh, you use native species and so that you get a native community back as closely as you can. Um, and so if it's a short-term disturbance, we found in um, uh, the dry mixed grass prairie and the drier parts of the prairie, uh, you can just leave uh, a, a 
trail or a pipeline disturbance, a short-term disturbance, and native prairie moves back in reasonably quickly, and you do get a native community. And so now they're calling this natural recovery and not even uh, re suggesting seeding. But we have a real issue in the uh, foothills and the central parkland where we've got rough fescue, and we do not know how to restore that. We don't have examples of successful restoration. It's a species that has not unlocked its secrets to us yet. And uh, so minimizing the disturbance is the priority in that region, avoiding native prairie and minimizing it and attempting to restore, um, but we're not convinced that that's successful. So, for example, Public Lands has recently put protective notations on all the rough fescue grasslands uh, that are under its control. Uh, notifying industry, this notifies industry up front that you will have reclamation challenges and you should think carefully about whether indeed you really want to uh, attempt to develop in rough fescue grasslands. So that's, and we do have new reclamation criteria that are just out for reclaiming well sites and um, it's on Alberta Environment's website and it's a lot more uh, ecologically based than um, previous reclamation criteria used to be. My name is Van Christou. Um, thank you, Cheryl, for, for your presentation today, as well as for all the work that you've done in making the public more aware of what's going on regarding uh, land use in, in southern Alberta. At our table, the uh, problem that, that came up was a matter of, of the legal uh, side of the protection of, of uh, valuable land, of public land. Um, it takes two things to, to uh, protect this land. It takes a government uh, who believes that public land is valuable and should be protected. Um, it seems to me that we have a government that believes that uh, everything should be in private hands, uh, so that we don't have a very good start. But it also takes a legal framework set up uh, which, we can, which the public can understand and can, can check to see whether or not uh, public lands are being protected. Uh, what sort of uh, um, framework do we have? What sort of legal framework do we have uh, that can uh, that we can look to to protect public lands in Alberta? Well, that's a pretty big question, Van. It's an important one. Um, I guess uh, it, it, it related to land sale, which is the subject of this talk. Um, we don't have laws that uh, deal with land sale. It's a policy uh, venue there. And so there's no um, requirement. And uh, as we've seen in the case, the recent case of the potato gate, as it's called, uh, policy um, is viewed by some ministers of the Crown as just a guideline and something that you can ignore. If you if you choose, so I don't know. Uh, I know that the conservation community, when this was going through, was trying to figure out legal ways of um, uh, requiring proper pro process. And there really isn't anything in uh, provincial legislation. And it, it it seemed that the only legal uh, avenue that would be available was species at risk legislation and the fact that we knew there were uh, federally and provincially 
uh, listed species uh, on that land uh, that, that it would be argued that uh, the government had a, uh, a, a net, it was necessary that they protected the habitat, the critical habitat of those species. Uh, and that would have been, that would probably would have been very hard to argue, even that, and to win. So the, the law around um, avoiding loss of um, environmentally significant um, habitat in this province is, is pretty weak, and, and um, the, there is no law to avoid the sale of public lands. But, but that said, we have all sorts of um, procedures and processes uh, when we're approving large projects for development, like the Energy Resources Conservation Board has public hearings, and when there's proposals for oil and gas developments, and they have venues for public input into, into these decisions. Um, and the Alberta Utilities Commission now approves wind developments, and, um, but not on public lands at this point. And so one would assume there's avenues for public involvement there. Um, I mean, there's, there's warts with those too, but uh, it, it doesn't seem like there's a very level playing field, whereas some, industry, some developers, players on the landscape are required to go through pretty major hoops to get permission to uh, disturb native prairie, and yet our government can just sell it to a potato farmer or at will. My name is Klaus Jericho. Joel, um, the only word I have for you, you are awesome. Your, con your contribution to protecting public lands over the years has been phenomenal. Terry, just one comment. I really liked your question because it's been in my, my psyche for a long time. Why, why do I care? <laughs> I know a lot of people, they don't give a hoot. So why do I get so emotional about it? And then I see on one of your slides you had grasslands 7,000 years old. Do we in government have enough civil servants and qualified civil servants to do these environmental and impact and cumulative effect assessments? Well, a short answer close is no. <laughs> uh, I think we, there are many dedicated civil servants in uh, departments responsible for land and resource management uh, in our province. They're professional, they're informed, they understand the issues, they're progressive, um, and, they, and they've developed tools, and so we, they have mechanisms for um, protecting those ecosystems, but they don't generally don't have the resources or the manpower to do it well. And sometimes I get the sense that there's a huge skepticism from politically elected representatives to these professionals. It's almost an anti-science. They think they're better than us. And, and so I don't think our um, elected representatives take, a, take the advantage they should of all of this expertise that's available to them and trust it. I don't know why there's such a lack of trust about it. And it could be that we've had a government, <clears throat> one party in power for 
ever since I came to Alberta <laughs> in 71, same party in power. And um, I just wonder how deeply political motives have seeped into the civil service. It seems to me civil service, at least at higher management levels, needs a good clean out every once in a while. And uh, that hasn't happened in Alberta. Um, so I, I think often there's not support by these good scientists or people, good intentioned people, even at the senior levels of management. Hi, Cheryl. Bev Mundell-Atherstone, thank you for your talk. Thank you for your, your uh, specifics. That was very good. Um, I guess when Palliser came here and he said this was uninhabitable and leave it to the buffalo, he was probably right. But instead, we came here and so-called developed it. Um, my question has really two, two foci, two prongs, and it partly relates to Van's question. When you were talking about how cities, and this comes from the discussion at our table, you're talking about city, how cities can get more public land. Um, this was a concern, and another concern is um, how cities like Lethbridge and Calgary can just keep expanding and taking over more of agricultural land. So my question would be, um, what regulations are there on cities not to just keep expanding and morphing into the into the agricultural land, the public land, and what about cities buying the land from the farmers and expanding and, and sort of being like an amoeba over the system? Are there any regulations to keep that from happening and having us use the land we have and grow upwards like in Germany? I don't think there are regulations, and this isn't exactly my area of expertise, Bev, but I don't think we have laws about that. We do develop municipal development plans that guide us that way, and councils are generally charged with implementing those um, plans for the specific municipalities. Like Lethbridge has just redone its um, municipal development plan. It calls it an integrated community sustainability plan, and it does talk about sprawl and our need to get a handle on that and intensify. But if um, you actually tried to... Um, uh, sort of say no more development beyond this point in a city, um, you can bet that the development community would be lobbying pretty hard to be able to continue. So there are forces within our community that want the sprawl, that benefit from it. And so it's, there's no laws that say you can't do that. It, it's it's got to be the community will. And I, I think at a... Um, a broader level, a regional level, the land use framework, the regional advisory committee that's looking at the South Saskatchewan River Basin Regional Plan is really struggling with that because they're attempting to zone southern Alberta and, and identify those areas that we would um, want to maintain as native ecosystems and um, those areas where we may have agriculture and sort of putting limits on urban boundaries. Um, you know, it, it's sort of a priority land use concept to give us a broader regional perspective on that. And so we're not dealing with each of these decisions about a new subdivision or that results in sprawl one at a time. 
good question, though. Um, Austin Fennell, thanks a lot, Cheryl, for your address today. Uh, it's nice to see you contributing in this way. Um, two questions. The first is, has to do with how much public land is there in southern Alberta, like that which has been in the uh, news lately. And the other, second question has to do with water. Was there just one source of water for this projected uh, potato farm, or would there have been several? What would have been the consequences for the rivers that they would uh, draw on? Okay. Uh, your question about how much public land is in southern Alberta, um, the answer is two-thirds of southern Alberta is public land, as I understand it. Um, I have the figures here for native grassland, and total natal, native grassland is about 34,600 square kilometers, and about um, um, two-thirds of that would be on public land. Yeah. So I, hope, I, I, I would like to check my facts on that, though, because I... Um, I have seen something to the effect that there's 5 million hectares of public land in what we call the parkland, grassland, the sort of southern Alberta region. Oh yeah, that's an important one and that's one that's near and dear to my heart. Um, that was one of the first alarm bells that went off on my mind was um, where would the water come for this potato production operation and potatoes take about uh, 16 inches of water one and a, one and a quarter um, feet of water uh, and so when you when you estimate that in acre feet uh, you were getting up to um, I think somewhere around 16 to 20,000 acre feet of water, which is the city of Lethbridge diverts about that much in a year to, to service our population of 90,000. Um, and so that's a substantial amount of water. And this um, proponent had gone to the Bow River Irrigation District, and I talked to the manager of the Bow River Irrigation District, uh, asking if they would provide the water to him, and they said yes. They said, we have um, conserved enough water from, as I say, efficiency improvements uh, that it would still be within our allocation to provide you water, that, that amount of water. Um, whether it would have involved an expansion of the irrigation district, I don't know. If it, if it did, uh, and I think it would have had to, then the... Um, there would have had to have been a plebiscite within the irrigation district about whether the irrigators supported that expansion. Uh, but first of all, there would have had to be an assessment if the land was indeed suitable for irrigation. And that had not happened. Um, but it, it all ties back to the current debates over water allocation that are going on at the Alberta Water Council, where, uh, and I think there's been presentation to SACPA about that, the environmental community is proposing that because we've over-allocated water in our basins and we have rivers that are degrading, they're, they're stressed, and particularly the southern tributaries of the Old Man and the Lower Bow River, uh, that government needs to take back uh, 
the allocation that is unused by irrigation districts and secure it for the river into the future. And also secure an amount that allows for human needs, the, the, the growing population of the region. And then whatever there is in terms of water we can allocate above and beyond that can be traded among the different economic interests because we do already allow trade. But there has been a real reluctance on the part of um, the Minister of Environment to meddle with the first-in-time, first-in-right system that we currently have and to actually take back unused water from um, irrigation districts, which hold 80% of the allocation. So if the irrigation districts are not willing to let go of some of their water, it's a no. It, it's, there's no game, right? There's not. There's no way we can. I don't know how we accommodate future economic growth in our region, increasing population, improving the health of our rivers, and so that those are very fundamental questions that are being debated right now at the provincial level. This will be our last question. My name is Tad Mitsui. Thank you, Cheryl. I learned a lot. Once I was listening to some kind of an interview uh, with uh, a person totally dedicated to free market economy. And he was saying, I hope I'm not going to be run out of town by asking this question. But this guy says, agriculture in the West is totally unsustainable. We should get out of it. Um, is agriculture sustainable in southern Alberta? If so, what kind of agriculture? <laughs> oh my gosh, Ted, that's a huge one. <laughs> I'm, not sure I'm, I'm not sure I'm qualified to answer that. Well, I think we've given the example of sustainable livestock production on native prairie, native range. So that's that's gone on for decades, and the ranges are still healthy and when you can put the proper stocking rate on them. So I think that's the, the bison, uh, millions strong, ran over the prairie for thousands of years. And so uh, uh, some ecologists look at cattle grazing as replacing the role that bison played in the ecosystem. Mind you, there's different ways we manage cattle. And they're kind of confined and it's continuous and the bison were more free roaming. But I think we're, we're doing pretty good with livestock production. Um, with dry land agriculture, um, you, you, um, I think many of those farmers operate fairly close to the line and you have to plan uh, for years when you will not get a crop. Um, and we all know the, the sort of the, the heart-wrenching stories of farm families who have just not been able to make it and have to leave leave the land. Um, and with the inputs that are needed in terms of pesticides and fertilizers, um, it's, it's costly. And I think if you really did, took a good hard look at it, um, the, the scale at which we're practicing dry land agriculture is not sustainable. 
especially with climate change occurs. And, um, and we, we are seeing more of the dryland farms uh, return to uh, permanent pasture, like with a permanent vegetation cover. And some landholders are even trying to restore native prairie. So um, there's that. Um, irrigated agriculture um, is, very, is a very um, economic activity right now because water does not have a value. And so as long as we, the public, are willing to let the irrigation industry um, have water at very low to no cost to put on land to produce crops, that will probably continue to go on as long as that, as that is allowed. Uh, I think we're going to have some serious reckoning as because we already know our river flows are declining. And so um, we know that we're not going to have as much water to dispense about in the future. And uh, there may be some people that have licenses now, junior licenses, that means they're not as, as old a license that we'll have to do without. There won't be enough to share, I think, um, so that whether what reckoning that produces in terms of rearranging how much land is, how many people are in irrigation farming and how, how well it's sustained, I don't know. But irrigation does require large inputs, large inputs of water, fertilizers, pesticides. So, um, okay, thank you very much, Cheryl. And thank you, everybody, for attending. So join me in thanking Cheryl one more time. <laughs>